A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 211 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar. Polar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like the feeling that Marvel will fix it all, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Oh man, with that introduction, did you just call me a disappointment? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess it's appropriate that we're going to be taking stock of the health of Star Wars comics this time, given that, uh, and I didn't know this, but I looked it up as you were talking there. That 211, 211, you know, like 911 and 411 is actually one of those numbers you can call in the US and apparently also in Canada. Uh, and instead of giving you information or being like an emergency thing, apparently it gives you like information on how to contact like health and social service type stuff, I guess. Oh. So awesome. We're going to be diagnosing some things with some 211 here uh, <laughs> on BTF. That's right. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we take a look back over the previous year of Star Wars Comics Publishing. This is your Beyond the Films 2016 year in review. That's right, you know how we do it. This episode will be focusing on the comics of 2016. Our next episode will be the games, which will be the episode all on its own this year. And lastly, films, television, and the um, other stuff. Now that said, consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of all ages, because here we go, on another adventure, Beyond the Films. That's right, and we kind of touched on the idea of Star Wars Rebels magazine in the U.S. back in our previous episode when talking about books, so if you want more information, you can check that out. Suffice to say, it is still ongoing with a couple of stories being reprinted from the U.K., which are reprinted from Germany uh, in each issue, but now that the U.K. version of Rebels magazine has been cancelled, apparently... There's some question as to what's going to wind up showing up in the U.S. Are we going to wind up catching up to the stories from the U.K. and eventually get stories that the U.K. never got coming over from Germany? Or are we just screwed? We don't know yet. Um, This time, we're basically focused almost entirely on material coming from Marvel Comics. There is one release I can think of that wasn't necessarily straight through Marvel. And, you know, Mark, in thinking about this, getting ready for this... There were three things that sprung to mind as sort of themes, I guess, in the way that I look at how Marvel handled things this year. Uh, Not since the beginning of Marvel picking it up again, but just specifically in 2016 that I thought might be good to maybe throw out here at the beginning and they can maybe guide us as we go along to see if my impressions are still the same after we talk about it some more 
if your impressions match mine, and at the end, kind of use it as a way to summarize things, uh, if that's cool. So, uh, sound good? Sounds groovy, my man. Okay, so, number one out of three. I would say that there is always going to be this, this clash in business between quality and quantity. Do you make really high quality stuff, but maybe not as much of it? Or do you make a whole bunch of something that's maybe mediocre or poor quality? And which of those are gonna drive your business forward? Because it can't all just be about quality because if you only produce a few really high quality things, you may not be able to make enough profit to keep your shareholders happy, to stay in business, to keep your job, etc. On the other hand, you do a bunch of stuff that's low quality, you may not be able to get the reputation that you need to keep people interested in coming back for more products and such. I would argue that this year, at least 2016, this is the year that Marvel definitely chose quantity over quality. This is a very mediocre year, but there was a ton of stuff. So in my mind, of those two, it's absolutely quantity rather than quality that Marvel decided to go with this year. Um, before I get to number two, your opening thoughts on that idea? You know, I, I think you're in the same boat that I'm in here. I mean, it, there was a, a flood of Marvel comics, and I didn't even realize how many this year until I looked at the list, and I was like, holy crap. I didn't realize I had fallen that far off the horse. I mean, I haven't been buying them in the physical copies. Uh, you know, I think the last physical copy of the Marvel comics I got was the Kane and trade paperback. You've been giving me your, your digital copies, so I've been going with those. And I kind of just fell off the horse on, on getting those. I've just been sticking with, like, the Marvel Spider-Mans, the X-Men, the Avengers-type stuff, and just reading the Star Wars ones in the digital format. But what I found is I don't pull my phone out to read the comics that often because the screen is small. I do have my laptop here at home, but usually it's down in my studio, and coming down and sitting in my studio in front of my desk to read comics is not something that I... I genuinely do. So I found I was looking at this list and most of these comics I've only briefly looked through. I haven't really, you know, I, I talk about that three-step process to how I read. Well, I've done just the quick breeze through on almost all of them. I haven't gone back for that second in-depth reading of all the dialogue. So, like, I'm just kind of like flying half blind here with this year because it was just so freaking much it became that point of well where do i start and i i kind of i mean i've been sitting there ever since it's like i i want to dabble in the obi-wan kenobi one i want to go with the uh, poe dameron the han solo but there was so much going on with the first year with all the different things we had with the three series and stuff it, it got hard to follow I, I i kind of feel like they should just stuck with two or three lines only and and just kept it to that but I don't know. Like, I, the whole process of going arc to arc instead of going series by series, I think it's allowed it to feel a lot more overwhelming than it probably is. But yeah, I definitely think quality has been put on the back burner and quantity was definitely put into hyperdrive. All right. Second point, um, probably the least inflammatory of them, I guess, and that is a comparison to Legends. Because really. We tend to compare the Marvel stuff that's coming out now to what was coming out from Dark Horse with Legends, but I think it really needs to be narrowed down a bit more because most of what's being released right now, not all of it, but most of it from Marvel is stuff set between A New Hope and Empire. And in that sense, I feel like even though a lot of what we got this year was kind of meh, it's still giving us a stronger single push forward through this era with the few novels that do fit in with it than what we got with Legends. 
Legends for this era, a lot of it is stuff that was old newspaper strips or it was the early Marvel comics. It was stuff from before there was ever any intention of having one continuity at all. And then once you get to the 90s and it really starts going with reprints and stuff again, uh, with new stories plus reprints of that era's stuff, you wind up with every so often getting new stories slid into that same time frame between those two films. But a lot of times they're meant to not contradict with anything. They're very continuity inoffensive. Let's just slide it in. Don't rock the boat. Don't do anything meaningful and such. And we wind up with an era that is extremely full to the point where, as I always say, the main heroes probably never have time to use the refresher or use the restroom. But at the same time, as chock full as it is, it's kind of a basket case. I mean, it's kind of a mess. Continuity-wise, chronologically, the order of stories, how they fit together, what contradicts what, all the retcons used to make it actually work. There are a lot of complaints about how many retcons it takes to keep the continuity straight in Legends. And I would argue that about 75% of the retcons for Legends are in that era because of the nature of how it was designed. So I would still argue that even though this stuff isn't all that great... It's more consistent and easier to follow than trying to read the Between a New Hope and Empire era in Legends with the sheer mass of stuff. I would say that it stands second only to the Clone Wars, thanks to the old version in the cartoon series, as the most difficult to suss out era of Legends. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about that as well. I was, I was really kind of throwing myself into it. And, and the way you put the 90s... You know, I think that that hovers around the point that I was thinking about was, you know, the nature of the way that the EU was created and stuff in the 90s, especially they were really going out of their way to draw on the old Marvel comics, that old second string canon and make it the quote unquote official continuity of of what became Legends. Uh, So there was a lot of stories that were purposely retcons. I remember I remember enjoying that era for that reason. Uh, You know, there was some really brilliant storytelling going on. It was very convoluted, but there were some really cool opportunities for some great stories because of that. Uh, But what I fear is I fear that Marvel, you know, they've got this opportunity where where it's a clean slate and everything counts, right? So so that's a great thing. But I'm afraid that that the shotgun uh, Peter Salt blast pattern of comics that they're giving us... I'm afraid that there is no one focused on that detail. You know, we don't have a a Marvel Comics representative in the uh, the story group that we know of. There's no one officially designated to be that role, the Axel in charge of just Star Wars comics, as it were. So when you have this many comics coming at you this fast in just one year, and then you look at last year and the, the plethora we had there, I think that you have an opportunity for a lot of the same type of errors that we did have in Legends if they're not careful, you know, you think about stories like uh, 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 the 3PO one, the Phantom Limb, you know, that that could have tied with more things, but really didn't. And then you've got other comics like Lando, where they're really not quite sure where it falls into place. Those kind of things, those little details are so goddamn critical to me that it really pisses me the fuck off. Sorry, Michael. But I just, <laughs> I, I just, I'm like, you don't know where the fuck the story is. I just, uh, that, that's. So so yeah, I will I will I will rail it back because that to me that is that is the one cardinal sin of legends that allowed so many issues that people condemn it for. And yet here we are going about having a, a similar process that is allowing that opportunity for, for screw ups. And that's something 
as a fan of Legends who was there and watched it get closed down, you know, you're like, okay, that 25 years of that type of storytelling, it's done. We're, we're moving to another one. I'm like, okay, do we have a 25-year shelf life? In 25 years, are we going to get just as convoluted? And right now, with the plethora of comics we're getting, I don't even think we're going to make 15 years before they're going to be like, all right, we're going to have to cut back on something here because you guys have made it just as shoehorned as it ever was. But again, there's that opportunity that they could get it right if they take their time. But when you throw out stories and you don't know where they're set, you're rushing it. Couldn't have said it better or with more profanity myself. I don't know. I think that, that that is a major issue. And I wasn't even really necessarily leaning in that direction. But yes, the idea that they're they're putting out stories that are somewhat connected to each other at times, but they're not necessarily designed around, you know, kind of like the way the Clone Wars was for Dark Horse from basically 20, 20 I guess 2002 until uh, uh, 2008. To basically say, you know, this story is at this exact moment, this is at this exact moment, here's how exactly they fit together. Because you're right, we have stuff like the Chewbacca miniseries, the Lando miniseries, the Han Solo miniseries, uh, the annuals, where it's just sort of a question of, okay, well, when did they oh, take place? Oh, you didn't even touch on those! Where do they, yes, the annuals! Yeah. Oh. Where do they fit? And Marvel's answer has only been, and I know this will not apply to every case, and they're not really giving us any clarity beyond that, of, well... You see, as the Marvel comics are going along, um, there's sort of a present of when the ongoing series are happening. So when we release a miniseries, that's basically when it takes place. Okay, wait. So you want us to just find a random spot where the characters could slip away for this other story and that's where it has to go in? Are you telling us that that's, that present is based on when the story starts? Is it when the story ends? And what happens when the inevitable delays to your comics happen? How does that affect when they take place in the Star Wars universe? Are they still running parallel like they're supposed to? Why can't you give us a mother effing note on when this story takes place? Just a little editor's note thing off to the side. A little asterisk saying, this story takes place between issues, I don't know, 12 and 13 of Marvel's Star Wars. Mm -hmm. That's all you've got to do. You don't have to give some big long thing. You don't have to insert a timeline into the front of your comics like Dark Horse did early on. Mm -hmm. But we need to know when they take place. Which brings me to number three. It seems like, and again, this is something I'm sure there will be some people who highly disagree with me on, because it feels like a lot of these stories aren't necessarily designed for their impact on story, on character, on the continuity at large. It feels like to some degree Marvel is using what I refer to as the dude process of story ideas, which is basically, for instance, for example, Dude, you know what would be totally cool, man? A stormtrooper with a lightsaber. Dude, that'd be like the old uh, concept art. Oh, dude, that is so cool. Oh, wait, we've even got a character, dude. The dude from, like, from Nar Shaddaa, man. He was a, an Imperial agent, and he had a lightsaber. Oh, dude, he could totally fit in. Dude, dude, I saw the Bad Batch arc of unfinished Clone Wars episodes. They had all these troopers. They had different armor, different looks with different specialties. Oh, dude, we can totally do that. That could be like a squadron. Um, dudes? Whoa, dude! Do we actually have a story to build around this? Oh, dude, who cares? It'll look so cool, nobody will care, and they'll eat it up and buy it. Or, dude, how cool would it be to have Han Solo's wife, quote-unquote, come back, and it turns out not only does she not get along with Leia, she's a black woman, social justice baby. Oh, wait, wait, time out. No, how cool would it be to tell a story of Chewbacca, and it's all straight up the way we see him in the films. We don't know what he's thinking or doing. It's all from the other character's perspective, almost like a silent film. Oh, dude, Han Solo is going to be a racer later. Let's have a whole comic about nothing about him doing some kind of like rebel mission as part of a race, man. Dude. And the result is stuff that looks great as clickbait 
and as pre-order bait, but then stories that wind up being meh because the focus doesn't seem to have been on telling a good story. The focus was on, let's introduce this thing that looks neat or can grab us attention to this story. Sana Solo, uh, what do they call it, Task Force Under the Scar Squadron, Mechs, dude, mechs in Star Wars. How cool would that be? We can do a whole Obi-Wan and Anakin miniseries just to bring in mechs. That'd be so sweet. At some point, the dude reaction has to give way to actually telling solid stories. Because otherwise, these stories feel like they are flimsy excuses of tales to introduce gimmicks. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. I'm not saying all of them are like that. I think the Poe Dameron stuff has been fairly solid. And there have been solid entries in a lot of other series. Kanan, for example. But... As, as the gimmick nature of what they're adding in seems to be ramping up, the quality level of the stories in general seem to be falling down. And that if that's a coincidence, they need to fix it. Because otherwise, it gives the impression that they care more about the dude clickbait reaction, you know, like the Sana Solo thing, than they do about telling solid Star Wars stories. That it's about the numbers, which would also explain why they tend to reprint all their stuff as regular comics, with multiple covers, with sometimes multiple printings, and hey, let's have a trade paperback, and now, less than a year after the trade paperback, how about a hardback edition of the same thing? It's all about the Benjamins or the Ben Kenobis, rather than the story. <laughs> Brotastic tales. No, I, I, I feel you. Marvel has a bad issue of this. I mean, this even goes into the consistency angle. Think about what Marvel's been doing with their regular lines, the 616 universe, and even their ultimate universe. I mean, they had stories like the all-new Marvel, right? They were already putting out the new stories while the world, or was it the uh, world-changing battle world event was still going on, and they had already put out the next series because they they keep getting off in their timing. So while they're still telling the first story, oh, oh, well, we've already got the other one rolling, and bam, here's the first issue. They did the same thing with Venom. Uh, the new Venom number one just came out. Flash Thompson still is wearing the suit. He's in two or three other comic series as Venom, but we've already got the suit on another individual because this whole publishing thing. Same thing with Death of X. Everyone's like, where's Cyclops? They've had to tiptoe around his death. Bam. Civil War 2. Same issue. Iron Man. What's going on with Iron Man? Well, we don't still know. We're still waiting for issue eight, but hey, we've already got the new first issues of all the stuff coming out where we've got Dr. Von Doom is playing Iron Man. We got some teenage girl as Iron Man, but they're tiptoeing around the fact of what happened to Iron Man in that huge Marvel event. Well, Civil War got pushed back and delayed, so they're not going to push back and delay everything else, which might be a smart thing to do in the aspect of not confusing your fans, but they're going to go forward with it anyway. And that's not really working in the in the main Marvel Spider-Man and, and that kind of storytelling genre. Now, if they do the same thing in Star Wars, we're going to have a cluster bomb of what the hell is going on here. And I think in that aspect, that's the only thing that's working for them, keeping them in small arcs. Is, is you don't have as much of that happening, but I think it gets back to that angle of, well, then you have more throwaway stories because they're all treated as small individual processes. You know, you could be working on a bigger story. That, like, like look at what's going on with, with Legacy, you know, with the way it was done. You know, I mean, it was all one through up to 50, and then once it got to 50, it went to those, those type of trades. But once other, all the other comic series in Dark Horse went to that, it became one of those things of like, well, it could just cancel tomorrow. I mean, look at Rebellion. It, it ended right where it ended. And you would have these through stories, these plots that were supposed to be continued on that never got touched. Invasion, where's your satisfaction conclusion? I still don't have it. What the hell was going on with Finn? Yeah, so in general... Obviously, there there are issues at play right now when it comes to this, and 
again, we'll, we'll get into it as we as we roll through. So I guess we can start with a comic series that was kind of an ongoing series. It was originally announced as if it was a miniseries. It became an ongoing series, and after two arcs stopped, which seemed to have been the original plan, so you might call it a maxi-series or something, uh, which is Kanan. Uh, Kanan, formerly the last plat- Padawan, and then Kanan First Blood, uh, not to be confused, of course, with, you know, Rambo. And this year had the last three issues of Kanan, issues 10 through 12, then saw the release of its second trade paperback, which was the First Blood trade paperback, the one that's the story of basically how he becomes Depa Bilaba's Padawan in the first place. And then uh, this month, December, we shall be seeing a uh, an omnibus release that's going to include all 12 issues of the Kanan series. I gotta say, I really liked the Kanan series. It gave us more insight into the character. It's Again, it's one of those ones that if it wasn't necessarily about Kanan, I'm not sure how much we would have cared, but as giving us backstory to that character, it worked well enough. And now that we're getting more references to his time, like Darth Maul even referring to him as Caleb Doom at one point in Rebels, I feel like Kanan was a solid backstory told that didn't wear out its welcome. They gave us the important end of his time as a Padawan, the important beginning of his time as Padawan, and then let it go so that we can know that about Kanan for the show and it enhances our experience without overstaying its welcome. This is a series I actually kind of miss that I did like that did end in 2016. So one big positive there is Kanan 10 to 12, I think. Yeah, I really enjoyed this series. I think, I think like you said, had it been anyone else, would we have enjoyed it as much? I don't know. I think there are people out there that probably would have. But I think that that's the brilliance of Rebels as a bridge between the films, the television, and the comics and the books. Because, you know, now we're able to use these characters in this direction. And I think that the way that they worked it, going with the past for so long, doing most of the story in flashback, which, again, I'm loving that that Star Wars is embracing flashbacks more. I think it's about time. Uh, But then moving forward to where it's more of a present day where he's got Ezra with him and stuff like that. I thought it was a a good use of of the the two eras together to tell a solid story. Uh, The artwork in this is some of my favorite. Uh, I I just all the way around, I enjoy this one. I like the ship designs. I like the legends elements that, that seem to crop up throughout the art. All the way around, I like this story, and I think that, it again, it benefited from being characters that we saw on, on TV. You know, characters that we were already kind of knowing and wanting to know more about. I mean, we know Rogue One, we're not going to be seeing most of these characters, or, or so Kathleen Kennedy says. And I know that that's one of the aspects of the new Legends, the new Legends, the new canon that, that gets me kind of concerned. I mean, I like when my stories intertwine, and I don't need to have the characters be major, but... When you've got a location where, you know, you could have a Jyn so walking through the base or something like that, slide her in. You know, I, I'm all for those things connecting. I think that's kind of cool. Speaking of ending in 2016, we also saw the last pieces of the big Marvel crossover event, which was Vader Down, which, of course, crossed over the ongoing Star Wars series with the ongoing, at the time, Darth Vader series. We had Star Wars number 14, Darth Vader number 15, and then, of course, they... Uh, once that story was done, released a trade paperback of Vader Down that included the stories from each of those, plus that Vader Down number one uh, special comic that wasn't technically part of either of them. So Vader Down wrapped up in 2016. Yeah, Vader Down was that was a fun one. It was the it was the confusing kind of crossover because you did have the crossover that happened that wasn't considered a crossover, even though it was a crossover with Boba Fett and Vader talking. 
uh, in the main lines. That was something very odd. There was, though, uh, something that I wanted to ask you about the Canaan one. There was a girl in there, and I'm pretty sure she was the same girl that was in the Vader series, that she had Vader so terrified. Do you remember that one where we were talking about how, how great it was? There was a cover with her, like, cringing underneath the computer stand. Uh, she was the dark-skinned girl. In Kanan? You have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's in the last the last one in number 12. He ambushes her, but I, I, they're not showing her name. But I, I swear to God, you're looking oh, at yes. her. Yeah, yeah, but it's not for Vader. It's That's Ray that's Sloan. That's Ray Sloan? That's Ray Sloan. Ray Sloan shows up in Kanan, and then Ray Sloan winds up showing up, of course, in tons and tons of other stuff as basically the leader of the Empire underneath, uh, what's his name, the, the guy that's trying to... Guide things oh, all wow. thrown S Gallius Rex. Yeah, that's Ray Sloan at the end of Kanan. That's interesting because she looks like she looks like that other chick that was in the Vader comic that was with him for like one comic and he terrified the hell out of her and then sent her off on her way. He had her do all that stuff and it was like just such a psychological thriller because it really terrified the crap out of her. You remember that one? I don't really because I thought that was that was Afra. No, there was another one, but I'm, I'm just, see, that's where I was having a hard time. I was like, was that in actual Marvel comics or was it a Dark Horse one? But I thought it was in the Marvel. I'll have to look at it later and check it out because that the art on that, the similarity is just uncanny. I was like, holy crap, is that really the same girl? And I didn't even think it might have been Sloan. Huh. Anyway, sorry, as you were. <laughs> <laughs> side, de- side detour. Side detour. Right, so, so, so Vader down. Vader down, for me, kind of a letdown. Star Wars is a shared universe anyway, right? Characters are going to be able to go from one story to another without having to have it be a crossover. So really the only time it makes sense to call it a crossover is when a story goes from issue to issue to issue from one series to another to get that storyline as opposed to just the characters crossing over. And that they did. That is what kind of the point was of calling it a crossover. So those who say, oh, it's not really a crossover, eh, it is. It's just a universe that usually doesn't need a crossover to be a crossover uh, or something like a cross through like Vector was where it's all one story, but they kind of still read separately and so on. This was an actual crossover. That said, they built this up like crazy. Like this is the game changer of this era. It's going to be so awesome. And not really. I mean, it was it was a crossover. It just it, it didn't fulfill its promise. I guess is the way I would look at it. It seemed like it was supposed to be this big, bombastic, you know, game-changing thing, and yet it didn't really feel like it changed much at all. It brought the Rebels face-to-face with Vader, got him a chance to act like a badass, and wound up with some arms swapping between droids, and gave us Afra being captured by the Rebels, which played into the next story arc, Rebel Jail, which really didn't seem to mean a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, but at least tied back into the first annual but game changer not so much it felt like vader down was a massive missed opportunity to do something really meaningful and instead it's something that goes down as like a landmark of this was the first time marvel did a star wars crossover but it doesn't go down in history as this is the time that marvel did this awesome important story thing you know Mm -hmm. so i mean it was all right but it didn't hold up to how it was hyped at all yeah well, no, that's the the aspect of, you know, we had already had it crossed over and then to have it do it the way they did. Like when I'm looking at it in my Marvel Comics app, that's on its own. It's its own book. It's not attached to the Vader at all. It's not attached to anything. And I don't really care for that. Like, you know, I like to have my stories that, that relate to each other be with each other. And I see no reason why that couldn't have all fit in the Vader line proper. Uh, you know, like they did with the earlier ones in the first arc. I mean, they crossed over plenty with that. I I think... 
I think it was one of those ploys to get at the casual Marvel typical fan that hasn't touched Star Wars yet, that's into crossovers, and they hear that, ooh, crossover. You know, this is the people that were into the DC best crossover ever, like, and it just backfired because we were like, this this is no more a crossover than what you were already giving us. What the hell, man? Like, And I think that confusion for the people that were in the know were like, that was a stupid call, Marvel. <laughs> what were you thinking? Hey, I, I liked the, the DC TV show crossover, the Arrowverse crossover, although a couple episodes really didn't feel like they were much crossed over. Anyway, so yeah, so this was an odd one. This is a, a story that just was hyped up. If it wasn't as hyped as it was it probably wouldn't end up leaving as much of a bad taste in anyone's mouth. Instead, it wound up being okay, not super impactful, and didn't didn't measure up to the hype in that case. So, yeah, maybe that's what's going to get people interested. I'm waiting then, if that's the case, if, if we really just need crossovers to get people interested, then next year I'm waiting for the big um, uh, Darth Vader and the Infinity Gauntlet story. <laughs> you know, or something like that. Star Wars Galactic. Civil War and you, crossover. You know, you could do that though from the 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 superhero standpoint. You know, have Thanos when he gets the the glove or something, looking through a room, and there's a Marvel comic, and he brings the universe to life. <laughs> oh God! But but it, you got to be careful because I I just I'm having horrible flashbacks back to issue number I think it was three of the original Marvel Transformers series where they just shoehorned in Spider Man, oh. and it was just it was just so bad, and it, it it caused reprint problems later as far as publishing rights did too. Um, <laughs> suffice to say, yes, Vader down. Yeah, uh, one of the series from Vader down though, of course, is the ongoing Star Wars series, and we had quite a bit of that released in 2016. We had after Vader down an issue of that sort of flashback series from the journals of old Ben Kenobi, which actually left us on a cliffhanger with a uh, black Kersantin going up against Obi-Wan. Then we had the rebel jail storyline in which we see uh, a disaffected rebel from back in annual number one, leading a raid to kill Imperial prisoners at a rebel jail because they're just too dangerous to be kept alive. And in the process, Leia and Sana have to work with Afra, who is a prisoner who's supposed to be being dropped off there, uh, leading to eventually her being sent back, you know, hitting the reset button and sending her back out into the galaxy. We then had the conclusion of that from the Journals of Old Ben Kenobi story as a single issue. Uh, then recently we had the storyline Last Flight of the Harbinger, which introduced the Scar Squadron, I believe they're called, the uh, uh, fancy special forces stormtroopers, like where one's got the cloak with the sniper rifle, and then there's the munitions expert, and then there's the leader who was the game master, who has a lightsaber, and so on. Uh, and then, most recently, the second annual, which finds Leia on a rebel mission, uh, injured, and being helped by a woman who is like a, a, a very muscular dock worker type individual whose uh, old mining job has gone down the tubes thanks to, in her eyes, the rebellion, who has to be convinced that the rebellion is essentially the right side to join. So several different storylines all within Star Wars this year. Plus, we saw trade paperbacks of Volume 2, Showdown on the Smuggler's Moon, which had finished last year. Volume 3, Rebel Jail from this year. And, of course, Marvel then going into the hardcover collected editions of stuff that just got trade paperbacks with hardcover collected edition number one for Star Wars with issues numbers one through 12, the first two 
story arc, Skywalker Strikes and Showdown on this Smuggler's Moon. So uh, a lot of stuff for Star Wars, the ongoing series this year. Yeah, see, I this series, this is the one I hope they keep going. Like, this series feels like it's doing it right for the most part. Like, you get the, uh, from the journals of Ben Kenobi, and you got the one that's off by itself. But I have a feeling that when they collect that in trade paperback, they'll move that one to be part of the story. And in that regard, I enjoy that because it's still part of the same series. They're just shifting where it falls in the timeline in the trade paperbacks. Uh, you know, you'd mentioned earlier about the fact that Marvel's putting out the hardcovers so soon, and I actually I kind of like that idea. I mean, some of my favorite uh, Dark Horse comics are the 30th anniversary uh, hardcovers that were limited to they only made the ones that people bought and then there were no reprints or anything like that. So it was like one of those things. Only what was ordered was what, what was made. Uh, but those were some of my favorites. And then they started doing that with Dark Horse, putting out other ones, but they would come so late that I would already have the comic. And I was like, oh, man, I, w- I would have enjoyed that hardcover, but I've already got it and I don't want to buy it again in the hardcover just to have it. Uh, but having it a little sooner, or at least knowing it's coming down the pike a lot sooner, I think it gives the people that are looking for that the opportunity to collect that without having to wait so long. I know when I was doing Legends and stuff, I was a paperback guy, so I would have to wait a year before I could get my physical copy of the book. So I was buying the hardcover before just so I could read it, and then I was giving it away as a prize and stuff. So it's just one of those things like... I, I don't mind the hardcovers, and I think that moving it forward like that, I think that's a, a cool move for the fans that like that stuff, don't have to wait. Story-wise, I really think that the Star Wars one, this is the probably the strongest of all the stories out there. Even though, yeah, we do get Call of Duty troopers and stuff like that. Uh, we get occasional stuff that's kind of more gimmicky. But, like, well, you got Leia. You got Leia working with uh, Sansa or whatever uh, Han's supposed wife was then you got Afra showing up like I'm liking the mix of characters in that I think that that's a, a good way to bump in the comics these are the type of crossovers I like where why weren't we mentioning that as a crossover I mean you know hey that Dr. Afra lady who's gonna get her own comic like she's already been in two series man she's a crossover and fool see this is one that I mean this really uh, it really wavers for me as far as the quality level it just completely depends on the arc and to a large degree who they have doing the artwork for it and to me, I think the artwork is the thing that bothers me the most because they started out this series heavily hyping it up of how great this new return of Star Wars to Marvel was going to be. Jason Aaron doing the writing. And so far, while there's been some contrivances like Scar Squadron, like Sana Solo, it's been relatively consistent. It hasn't always been great, but it's always been pretty good, you know decent, uh, solid effort and whatnot, some uh, leaning towards really good, and some of it just kind of, you know, middle of the road. But, from an artistic standpoint, they made a big deal about how John Cassidy was going to be the guy doing the story and how awesome it was to have John Cassidy, and his art was really good for that first arc. But then they're like, we got him now, they're already reading, screw them. We can bring in whoever the hell we want, they're going to buy it anyway. And you wind up with, uh, let's see, uh, Simone Bianchi gets brought in for issue number 7, uh, issues 8 through 12 get Stuart Eminem, 13 to 14 get Mike D- uh, Dodato Jr., and uh, then Mike Mayhew comes in, and then so on and so on. Uh, and the result is a very uneven-feeling series. Whereas, like for instance, the Rebel Jail arc, the artwork is incredibly dark. 
in terms of coloration. It's very rough in its feel. It fits the feel of the story, but sometimes it's a little tougher to figure out exactly what's going on. And it almost looks like everybody's always in pain <laughs> because of the, the facial expressions everyone has. But you look, for instance, at stories like like Stuart Eminent. I, I loved the original Ultimate Marvel line before they rebooted it like eight times or whatever it is now. Uh, I loved the Ultimate Marvel line early on, but the one thing that drove me nuts about Ultimate X-Men was Stuart Eminent as the artist. I don't care for his art. It feels less defined than it needs to be. It feels like, at times, characters made of mashed potatoes doesn't really work for me, but they bring in Eminent for this. And it's sort of like, from an artistic side, it's almost a bait-and-switch. You know, check out this new, new Marvel Star Wars series. We're going to have these solid stories by Jason Aaron and art by Cassidy. And then as soon as they get to issue number six, they're like, yeah, screw it. You know, he can move on to other things. We've got them hooked. So artistically, the consistency is a mess Yeah. as far as that goes. Story-wise, I thought From the Journals of Old Ben Kenobi is interesting enough, but I usually find myself groaning when one of those issues comes through because I'm like, oh, can we get on with the rest of the freaking ongoing story, please? Because they're, they're decent enough. But I don't really care enough to be excited about those issues. I thought Rebel Jail went well, although I think anyone who read the first annual, it had pretty much been telegraphed by about the middle of that arc who was going to wind up being the leader behind the mask. And then Last Flight of the Harbinger and the annual, the annual was all right. Not great, not horrible, just kind of all right. Um, Last Flight of the Harbinger, though... Really kind of a copcomamie scheme that they tried to pull off. Really, the, there's a lot of logical holes in how it's supposed to work. And while Scar Squadron presents a cool, strong new villain group to go up against our heroes, led by Creel, who we'd seen before, I don't know, there's just something so gimmicky about that idea. And the whole, you know, well, we never see anything else ever again like this, as far as we know, in canon that unless they expand upon this idea and there are other, like, special forces groups of troopers that we see with different specialties here and there, as opposed to it just being, like, stormtrooper, snowtrooper, biker scout type trooper, and so on, it feels like a like an extreme gimmick. Make this feel like a more normal part of the universe that's not just these guys. And I think I'll be able to look back on this and reread it again with a more positive outlook. But it just, it felt like, like I said, dude... When it came to figuring out the idea for that, and you add them into the story, I, though I will say the one thing I will give a, a particular um, bit of praise to is that we got a story that felt like it was just a single issue introduction to Scar Squadron that was just going to be a complete standalone that meant nothing other than the fact that we just introduced the characters. And it turns out that the Admiral, the, the rebel leader that they capture there, that's the dude who was supposed to be bringing the ship that wound up being strapped to the front of his ship when we got further into the, the uh, last flight of the Harbinger arc. So they did a good job of making what could have been a throwaway issue to introduce those characters actually matter in the broader scheme, even though, if it, even though it didn't really feel like part of that arc as much. Uh, as for going to trade paperback and then almost immediately going to hardback, that to me feels like multiple dipping. Pick one or the other, or do the hardcover years later for those who want a collector's thing, but doing individual issues with a ton of different covers, then doing trade paperbacks, and within a year turning around and giving a hardcover, to me that seems like it's just a blatant money grab, and they know that people will buy it because there are collectors out there, so they're gonna do it. Uh, Marvel feels so much more influenced by how can we make the most money off of this than I felt like Dark Horse was. 
And but that may just be my perception because of the way they do it. Because Dark Horse wasn't doing like a bunch of variant covers mm-hmm. for the most part. And I think of that as the cash grab kind of thing. Maybe it's just the way I categorize things mentally. Yeah, because I'm for me, it's the the covers. I'm like, I, I don't care so much about the hardcover. I think that's a cool feature that they're doing it so soon. It's the, all those variants. Like, why? Like, I get a variant. You know, one or two, but when you, when you have more than two variants for one single issue, and and issues like number seven and stuff, like you know, variants should be for like your number one issue, your your maybe twenty five, your fifty, your one hundreds, you know, things like that. Special issues, not every single issue, and the blank ones. Like I don't like, I just I don't know. Like if you're doing the blank ones, give me one variant and a blank one. Now speaking of the blank ones, I gotta say that the blank one is actually one variant that I think is really cool. The ability to get a blank one and then take it and have your favorite artist or even yourself create a cover for that issue i think that is a fantastic idea however our buddy is carlos that does it uh pulls together the various images of covers that people have had done and includes them as the uh the sort of a blank cover generated cover whatever you want to call it list of covers amongst a cover gallery uh, that's on facebook to show off and It never ceases to amaze and disgust me how Darth Vader number whatever. There's no Leia in this issue at all. It's Vader and it's really dark and it's all mostly males. But because this fanboy is going and getting his cover done, it's going to be Slave Leia flashing her tits everywhere. (laughs) The extent to which so many of those covers, at least the ones that we're seeing showing up online after they're done, wind up being Slave Leia or some over-sexualization of a female character that has nothing to do with the actual contents of the issue. It's just someone going, <laughs> I get a chance to see boobies. It's it's ridiculous. And to me, it is a relatively negative uh, reflection of fandom. You want to not be considered geeks who are sitting in their mama's basements and have never kissed a girl? You want to not be considered that? Making those your cover of choice most of the time, especially when the issue has nothing to do with Leia in slave attire, you're kind of defeating yourself (laughs) when you're doing that. So could we please maybe, when you're going to get a cover done, make it about a cool Star Wars cover or the story that's in the issue? I mean, surely the artists are getting tired of it. I mean, how uncomfortable is that sitting there when somebody comes up? Hey, can you draw for this comic and, and sign it? Sure. What would you like? <laughs> I'd like Leia with her. T- uh, I, you realize I that want Dolly Parton Leia. This is <laughs> this is issue number two of Poe Dameron. You really want Leia's? T- yes, I do. I can only <laughs> hope that at some point some artist is going to react to this by drawing old Force Awakens Leia yes. like that. Just to mentally scar the person asking for it so they stop doing it. Maybe Like that Photoshop guy that trolls the people. (laughs) Can you make us the same height? It lowers her head. Uh, I just, I don't know. And and maybe it's just I've gotten to the point where uh, being a married guy and and dealing with all the things that students go through, and now middle school and high school students, um, and seeing some of the things that some of the girls have gone through for one of the, the shelters, one of the like victims of sex trafficking shelters that we work with for uh, their classes. It, it just more and more. I'm just I'm recognizing how completely over sexualized we tend to treat many Star Wars female characters and how it's just taken as huh, that's a good one as opposed to <laughs> you got issues. You know, uh, I don't maybe I'm. 
I don't know, I'm sure somebody will blast back and give me a reason why it's totally it's totally cool and it's totally respectful of Leia and Carrie Fisher and of Star Wars as a franchise and of ourselves as fans and of women in general to draw the women like that. But then again, we've got a president who likes to grab crotches. So yeah. Bring it. It's 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 just it's the it's the realm of art. It's it came from pop up and covers are supposed to be reminiscent of that, and so it's, it's that it's that pop up style. But you know, you did. I think you hit the major issue. I think that comes around with most comics in general in the aspect of the rotating artists. I mean, when you're when you sit down and you want to read an arc, you want it to be all that one artist. I know. You know, when we were talking about legacy, when you go from Jan Derisma and then you go to other artists that aren't handling Cade Skywalker or other characters as well, and you're suddenly like, you know, what what's going on with with Jiraiya? You know, I mean, he doesn't quite look the same anymore he he looks a little different and when you're doing it so much you know i mean i mean legacy did it well where like when they would do it it would usually be like for one issue or or the guest artist would have two issues then we jump back to jan but with this it's almost like every other issue you're getting somebody else and and that is very disjarring when it is the continued story you know i mean that is something that bait and switch that you talk about well we got him in here we brought that guy in now you can go off and do other things that is something that's disappointing. Uh, you know, I mean, some of my favorite Venom comics are the ones that are all drawn by the same guy. You know, I mean, it, it's just something about having that style and having that style be reminiscent of the comic. I mean, think about the Dark Empire series and the look of those. You know, I mean, they had that, the dark blues, the dark purples, the very gritty style. And that, you know, I mean, how discerning would it be if when you get to issue four, you're suddenly you're, you're thrown into Kanan style art? And then you go back to that again. I mean, that would be so, you know, universe shattering, you know, that you would just be drawn right out of it all. Be going, why, why the hell did you do this? And I think doing it to that level, even in a, in a series like Star Wars, I, I think that there is a, a cause to tone it down. You know, pick one or two or four artists and let them be your mainstays for this one series. You know, use the other guy on this series over here kind of thing. Spread out that love. You know, don't make one series the one where everybody gets an opportunity to draw Luke Skywalker. We're going to have all these weird versions of Luke running around. Like, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Uh, so you talk about Dark Empire, and I just keep thinking of Empire's End when they did just that. And it was like... Here's Dark Empire. Now here's Dark Empire 2. It looks like Dark Empire. Now here's Empire's End, which looks like we let the kids draw it because Daddy didn't want to do it. But that's a whole other thing. Uh, Speaking of ongoing series, though, that brings us to Darth Vader. And this year for Darth Vader, we had the story arc The Shoe Torin War, which actually built on the previous year's annual number one on the planet Shoe Torin. Then we had the final storyline of the series, End of Games, which wrapped everything up with issue number 25, And in kind of tying in with this, uh, we've seen the trade paperbacks this year of the Shoe Torn War and End of Games and the arc that came before Shoe Torn War, which was Shadows and Secrets, the second arc of the series. And of course, a hardback collected edition as well of the first two arcs, uh, Vader and Shadows and Secrets. I gotta say, I'm kind of torn on this one because I... I liked the first arc, and I like the characters of the droids. I like Aphra. I think those play well, and Vader just being a badass worked well. So the first arc, I was like, yeah. Second arc, I was like, yeah. You know, it it was okay, but I was like, where exactly are they going with this? But I think this could still work, you know? And then, of course, we had Vader down, which which popped into the middle there. And then we come out of Vader down. Shootor in War was okay, 
end of games was okay, but I don't think anyone expected when this series began and introduced us to to uh, Silo and to the individuals like Morit and such where they, you know, they're sort of trying to replicate the idea of the Force with technology and supplant Vader and all this kind of stuff. Uh, basically, somebody sitting there going, dude, what if somebody was trying to create the Force through science? Dude, he could be a rival to Vader, dude. I don't think anybody expected at the end of that first arc that that's what the entire series was going to wind up being about. And basically, that's what it was. The end of this series, end of games, winds up being a confrontation between Vader and Silo. And while I think it was handled well, I think it was handled very strong as far as a bombastic battle. I think Shutorin War was one of the weaker links as I think with Shadows and Secrets to a degree. But I think End of Games played out well. I think the original arc in the series played out well. They make good bookends to each other. Finding the scheming of the Sith involved, good stuff. Tying it into uh, the first annual so it wasn't just sitting out there. There's a lot of good to come out of the Darth Vader series, but that's not what people really expected, I don't think. I expected the Darth Vader series to be Vader being out there as a badass going after the Rebels. I expected there to be clashes between the Empire and the Rebellion, and the Rebellion is barely existent in the Darth Vader series. It's all the internal thing up against Silo, and Silo, if Star Wars is meant to be like this space fantasy type thing, to me, Silo was always a little too far towards the harder science fiction to really mesh with the feel they were going with with the Marvel Star Wars stuff of the time. So while I think Darth Vader as a series was pretty good overall, I'm still kind of torn on what to even make of it because it just, it was not what was expected. I did not expect the the Force Science Freaks from the end of the first arc to be what drove this series all the way to the end. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat. Like, I think the thing that really leapt out of this series was Dr. Aphra and, and the fact that she'll probably be getting her own series here soon. I think, you know, that makes sense why they canceled it because he was becoming the mustache-twirling villain all over again. You know, and that, I think... I think that's the problem you have with Vader in anything. It's like, do you constantly create places for him to wipe out so there's nothing left when it's all over? Because otherwise, you kind of diminish the evilness of him. Whereas, like, Palpatine gets more diabolical with every, well, it was all his plan. You know, like, oh, okay. Like, Vader kind of becomes more inept with every story. Uh, and the thing that I kind of come away with was, why wouldn't Vader adapt that Force-mimicking technology? I mean, he is a, a being that is half robot, half technology himself. He can't throw Force lightning. Why wouldn't you, you know, create or take and adapt that stuff and, and, and utilize those aspects that you can't quite always function? Which, honestly, I still, to this to this day, I think there's no reason Vader shouldn't be able to throw Force lightning. I just think... If he does, it will come out the stub at the bottom of his hand and just blow up the arm. I think that's how they should be treating that. But they don't go there, which brings me back to, well, then why wouldn't he take and adapt that technology? That seems like, to me, a very in-character of Vader thing to do. What did he do with Starfighters? He took them and he modified the hell out of them. What did he do with 3PO's chassis? He rebuilt them and modified them. I mean, that's what Anakin Skywalker does. I mean, granted, I know Vader's not Anakin Skywalker, but he still tinkers with technology. He did, at least in Legends, he used to mess with his own arms and stuff and try to get better, you know, strength out of him and things like that. 
so that was something that kind of jumped up to me. It was like, well, you, you've got this great premise of, well, here are these people. They're, they're using technology to do the same thing. Why wouldn't Vader take advantage of that? Yeah, it certainly is a question of where the storyline and the elements of the story are going to go from here. Aphra was fantastic, but then she disappears for a chunk of the story when she's captured. Uh, Aphra is getting her own series. In fact, the first issue of that releases this week as of when we're recording this, so we have not seen that first issue yet. But of course... Later on down the line, we can circle back to it, and certainly we'll be talking about that more next year whenever we have more than one issue to go on for Dr. Afra. And I, I will say that well, characters like— Well, what's weird—what's interesting is Free Comic Book Day, they took the number four of Darth Vader and redid it as Dr. Afra number one, which had me wondering, like, are they really going to roll with that as Dr. Afra number one, or are they going to give us another Dr. Afra number one? <laughs> now, it'll be a different one, so that'll be like the Halloween special or something. I don't know. I Looking ahead, though, I think one of the things I liked about the characters in that series— was sort of, there's almost like a fatalistic nature to them. So you had, like, Thanoth, the inspector, who you think is constantly looking over Vader's shoulder, and Vader's not quite sure what's going to happen, and he doesn't want to wind up being found out, and it turns out that, of course, Thanoth figures out everything. And once he's figured out what he needs to figure out, he's willing to give that information to Vader because he believes it's sort of for a greater good, and instead of being tracked down, he knows Vader would just try to silence him, so he's like... Here's the information. It's been a pleasure serving with you. Now I expect you to kill me, right? And we had Afra saying kind of the same thing, you know, about how, you know, well, if it comes to a point where our, this relationship, this working relationship ends, kill me. I expect you to do it with a lightsaber. I expect you to do it cleanly. And she even references that later. Um, so there's definitely a sense of it's bad news to be working around Vader, and they know it. And that gives the characters a different feel to them. Uh, the Darth Vader series is absolutely not about hope whereas the other series to some degree is. Speaking of ongoing series, we also had a new ongoing series premiere this year, totally outside of that same time period that most of the Marvel comics are being released in, which is Poe Dameron. We got the story Black Squadron. Uh, we got the story Lockdown. We got the story so far, at least the, the first parts of one called The Gathering Storm. And so far, we've gotten a trade paperback of that Black Squadron storyline. So... This is a story that basically fits in between the end of Poe's story in Before the Awakening, where he's told, hey, here's the information you've recovered. It tells us Lor Santeca is who we need to get the information from, and that's you know, and we need to get out on his trail. And instead of that leading directly into The Force Awakens, like everybody pretty much assumed that it did, instead that is just starting a long chase to find Lor Santeca which is being covered, among other things, within the Poe Dameron comic. But it's using the characters of Black Squadron and giving us more insight into the characters as we know them from The Force Awakens. This one, to me, is really a highlight because it's giving us those insights. It's been a pretty good series so far. They're sticking with shorter arcs of about three issues that make them make it feel like a little more fast-paced of a series. they got a good villain with a, a Terex coming into the mix. And finally getting a little bit of his background now. The only thing that gets me about it is just that it really didn't feel like there was supposed to be time for a whole comic series, an ongoing one at that, between the end of Before the Awakening's Poe story and the beginning of The Force Awakens. It felt like those were meant to go one to the next, but apparently not. But overall, I've been pretty pleased with this one. Yeah, this is one I haven't had a chance to, to really get into yet. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the era. I think Poe Dameron's a character I want to know more about. I think the issue I'm having is, like, I, I had an intimate bromance with Poe Dameron because Oscar Isaac is just so awesome. 
And yet, I feel like what's been delivered on screen and stuff has been lacking, uh, you know, and I, I think this is a great opportunity for the character to grow. And I think they delivered that, but I'm still kind of, I want to see him grow more on the films, and I hope to see that he actually takes the lead role that I hope he will become. Like, I, I'm envisioning him as a Han Solo slash Luke Skywalker pilot type, you know, and... and I felt like what we got in the first film, first film, the seventh film, uh, it just didn't really live up for his expectations that I had for him. So, like, this is the opportunity to fill in that background, but I kind of want to get to a present day Poe Dameron. I want to know what's going on with him right now, and I, I get they're not going to tell us that because it's between the movies, but that's where I want to go. Like, this series, like, I get, I, I know where it's going to end. You know, he's going to find Santeca. So, I'm just, I, I just. I don't know, like, like the urge to grab this one and really get into it. Like I wanted to, but I find the story isn't what's drawing me in. It's more the character himself. And it's the story that's kind of keeping me from getting into it right now. That brings us, of course, to a not a plethora this time of miniseries. But again, some miniseries, some one shots, trade paperbacks of miniseries. We already talked about Lando and Chewbacca last year, but they did have their trade paperbacks this year. But as far as new series, new miniseries... Uh, we had Obi-Wan and Anakin as a miniseries, then a trade paperback. We had Han Solo as a miniseries. It doesn't yet have a trade paperback. Uh, the Force Awakens adaptation miniseries, which I believe will have its trade paperback by the end of the year. And then as a one-shot, we had C-3PO, The Phantom Limb. So I guess just starting out with Obi-Wan and Anakin as a miniseries, uh, what did you think of that one? I like the fact that they went back to that era. I think that this is something that I, you know, this is them at where I would like to see them. You know, this is the type of stories that I hope we get more of for these two. You know, I don't want to go back to where Anakin's closer to the Phantom Menace. Uh, I like him being closer to the Clone Wars or actually just being in the Clone Wars. Those are the type of stories when it was Dark Horse on, in the realm. Those were my favorite Anakin and Obi-Wan tales. Uh, you know, I think back of the ones where when Obi-Wan was captured by Asajj Ventress with Alpha and he had the Sith mask put on him and Anakin was, you know, leading a bunch of Padawans and Chancellor Palpatine told him, hey, you need to leave everyone there and you need to come back. And Anakin was like, but if I leave them all, they're all going to die. You know, and he had to do it. Those type of things, those character defining moments. And I think that by putting this in an era like that, I think it, it really has an opportunity for us to really kind of explore Anakin as well as the dynamic between Obi-Wan and Anakin. And that's something that really intrigues the hell out of me. This is one where I thought the art was pretty solid. And the story itself, to me, was kind of, yeah. Again, it wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Uh, it was another opportunity for Anakin to magically save the day, really, at the end and play the Wesley Crusher role. Wow, we don't have any other mechs to go after these mechs that are going off to kill Obi-Wan. Wait, I see you've got some random technology around. Give me five minutes, and I'll make a whole bunch of vessels out of them. It strained credulity, to some extent. And it played off of... A, a, a peril or a conflict that was obvious, right? Like, we know, for instance, with Rogue One, we know that they're going to have to steal the Death Star plans and it gets to the Rebellion because that's what sets up A New Hope, okay? So the story is, what happens to these characters? How do they get it? What's the backstory of that happening? So we have an event that we know, but we care about the backstory, so we're interested in Rogue One. As opposed to it being a story where we don't know what's going to happen and the suspense is about how it's going to turn out. Here we get something that kind of tries to blend the two and winds up falling apart to some extent, at least as far as suspense goes, because it's, <gasps> Anakin is leaving the Jedi Order? Oh my god, what's going to happen? Oh wait, he's going to return to the Jedi Order. Duh. So the suspense of where's the story going is gone. 
And since we never knew or had a reference to him ever temporarily planning to leave the Jedi Order in any other story, there is no boy. I wonder what the backstory is of that reference to go with this. So it's got this contrived Anakin's ready to leave. Here's the story of why he didn't decide to leave, even though we knew we never knew he was going to even think about leaving in the first place. And really, the, the only thing that really to that, as far as I'm concerned, makes that story particularly interesting or impactful is to be able to see the manipulations being made of Palpatine on Anakin. But they could have done that without there having to be some kind of, well, Anakin's going to quit and Obi-Wan's going to quit to follow him kind of story. So we get a story that doesn't feel like it has much impact on the galaxy around it, is somewhat of a contrived conflict, and just kind of is there. Uh, again, it's not bad per se, but it's just kind of there. If, if the story of Obi-Wan and Anakin didn't exist, if that comic series had never been made, you would never miss it. True, true. I mean, what I, what I think I, I really miss is the sense of these two being brothers, you know, I mean, when we got to Matthew Stover's Revenge of the Sith, you know, there was that sense of these two were the heroes that were on everybody's data streams, you know, these were the guys that were the go-to guys for the Republic, and I kind of want to get stories that kind of build back up to that, you know, raise them to this mythological level amongst, you know, the, the people of the day. Like, oh, look, it's Kenobi and Skywalker kind of thing. You know, the hero worship that was going on because they happened to be the names that were attached to all the major battles. I would love to have stories that kind of bring that relationship back to the fold. I did like the aspect that Kenobi was willing to leave the Order as well because and, – and I felt like it was like more the, the connection to Qui-Gon, you know, the promise to Qui-Gon that he was willing to, you know, stay true to that more so than the promise to the Jedi Order itself. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. That brings us to another miniseries this year that actually just wrapped up. Han Solo, the story of basically Han Solo and Chewbacca winding up getting into the Dragon Void race, a space race, one of the most dangerous ones out there, very prestigious one to win. And in the process, trying to go to various planets on a secret mission for Leia, which of which joining the race is a cover to gather up all of these spies when it turns out that one of the spies has betrayed the others and they're being killed and so on and so on. And sort of how is it that Han is going to, again, help the rebellion, which is him doing a favor really kind of specifically for Leia and possibly drawing them, you know, closer together as she sees more of his heroics and such. Um, this is one where... Again, I thought the art was really solid on this one. And from a story perspective, I mean, giving him a reason to stick around is interesting. Having him getting more involved with the Rebellion is interesting. And sort of the murder mystery-esque nature of who is the traitor, although it's not all that well handled, uh, makes for a decent little story. But again, if this story didn't exist, you would never miss it. And now we got to figure out where in the hell this story could possibly fit in to the present, quote-unquote, of the ongoing Star Wars series, which leaves a lot of head-scratching going on. So, I don't know, this is another of these series that it wasn't great, it was decent, but it didn't need to exist, and doesn't seem like it's going to have an impact on anything. So why did I just buy all these issues? I mean, I guess I'm maybe I'm just spoiled by Legends. I like the idea that a story that I buy, that I spend money on and spend the time to read is going to matter in some form in the grand scheme of things in some way other than just being a standalone thing that means nothing like, say, Ruins of Dantooine. And it feels like that's what a lot of these miniseries are giving us. Uh, Chewbacca and now, you know, Han Solo, his fellow Millennium Falcon pilot. 
gets one of these series as well, which looks great, but doesn't seem to affect anything again. So why did they make it? I, I'm with you in the aspect of the art. I absolutely like this one uh, for the art. I think it's glorious all the way. I haven't read the fifth one yet. You still hold on to the cold on that one. But <laughs> I'm uh, I'm enjoying this one I, I more than I thought I would. I think the thing for me that's that's interesting is the the really playing up the Han Solo is a racer angle. You know, he in Legends he raced swoop bikes, which I always thought was you know I, I kind of took that in, in into consideration, and I always saw you know his his love of speed kind of came from that. But now like now it's shifting like I always saw Han as a Harley guy before. Now I'm seeing him more as a as a. Uh, as a Paul Walker kind of fast and furious racer guy, you know, like he's the kind of racer that, that drives the old long bed or the old long bed Datsun pickup. And he's got a, you know, V8 inside of it, but he doesn't lift the hood because he doesn't want anyone to know what he's racing with, but he's out there to race you for pink slips. And I think that that's kind of what they're doing with this is this is to serve that new backstory. Uh, I think it was bloodline that really played up the fact that he was doing more racing and stuff, even after he was doing it before and after we saw him in a new hope. And so this is the establishment of, yep, you see Han Solo races. Yep. That's in his blood. So that like, maybe it's, maybe it's contrite. I don't know. I, there was that aspect of it that was kind of like, uh, all right, I, I'll follow this. I'm I'm still having a hard time adjusting to Han's new background. I'm kind of waiting for the, the standalone Han Solo movie to really set that into motion. I mean, there's still questions of, does he have any ties to an Imperial Academy when he was younger? I mean, it's wide open. I mean, there have been people assuming one way and assuming the other way. It still hasn't been established either way. So every time we get anything like this, I'm kind of, you know, it piques my interest as to, okay, what are they going to do with that? And it does seem like, you know, him being a Fast and the Furious type racer, uh, it's all about the race. This little hunk of junk can really move. And and later in his life, he's trying to recapture the magic of that one special race car he had, the Millennium Falcon. So, yeah, I mean, there's that angle of it that really conflicts with me where I'm, I'm I, I enjoy it. And yet I'm also kind of put off by it at the same time. Hey, you're supposed to be the fastest thing in the valley, man. But that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this close to you. That's right. Basically, Han Solo has become Harrison Ford's character of Bob Falfa from American Graffiti. <laughs> no, really, it's it does make sense. This does make sense in the grand scheme of things. If he's going to have become the, the guy running the racing circuit stuff in the era after Return of the Jedi, and eventually he winds up going from there back into smuggling and whatnot once things wind up happening that split up him and Leia and everything that happens with Ben, that does make sense that they want to lay a background of him as a racer in something else. Uh, it would have been nice to have a story that was more in-depth than just, hey, let's have Han Solo as a, on a rebel mission as a racer. Again, not a bad story, a decent story, but it just doesn't feel like it needed to be there. It just Marvel's approach seems to be, we're going to tell you stories. They may not matter, but hey, they all connect. And I want both, to be honest with you. Uh, I guess this leads us into the other miniseries of the year, which was the comic book adaptation of The Force Awakens, uh, which was adapted by... Chuck Wendig. So you might expect a whole bunch of sentence fragments. You might expect some weird uh, ways of telling the story, but it's really kind of hard to mess up a comic adaptation of a film if you stay true to the film. And I would say that for the most part, the adaptation of The Force Awakens was non-offensive. It added virtually nothing. Um, the biggest complaint I would say with it is that they they cram the first 
chunk of the film into just a couple of pages, so the beginning of it feels really, really rushed. But beyond that, it was just kind of there. It was like Wendig was like, I'm getting paid to just take dialogue from the film and write it down again so somebody could make art for it? Cha-ching! <laughs> because it really felt a lot more like... I'd say it felt a lot more like Dark Horse's adaptations of the prequel trilogy than it did the old Marvel adaptations of the original trilogy or the special edition Dark Horse. And just in the sense that there weren't a lot of errors. It wasn't like this thing was made so far before the film that there's all kinds of problems with it. Uh, it didn't have some of the same inconsistencies, say, as the novelization did. But it really is a very straightforward adaptation of the film to the point where it, it's... And I always have trouble justifying the purchase of an adaptation that's not going to add beyond what we see in the film. And this one doesn't. So for most fans, there's no way I could recommend buying this because you might as well just watch the movie. Uh, if you want something new out of it, read the novelization or the junior novelization. At least you got some new elements to it. Again, not bad. It's a serviceable adaptation, but it is just kind of there. And didn't it give us like like two small tidbits? Like we had like an additional part or two in Maz Kanata's fortress, and I think one or two on Starkiller Base. Like they were they were like literally just two. Like that was it. I'm in the same boat. I don't really have any of the prequel trilogy in this regard. I have a couple of the original trilogy uh, for the same reason. You know, I mean, I want to have something. Uh, I, I didn't get the junior novelization of the TFA for the same reason, then found out it actually added things. I'm like, ah, now I got to rush out and get that one. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I, I, I just, adaptations that don't add are just definitely one of my least favorite things to rush out and grab. I'm not in any rush to get something that is basically a carbon copy just in another format. You've got to add something else. I mean, throw in a short story at least at the end and I, I'll, I'll, I'll damn you for it later, but I'll buy it now. <laughs> you want that Stover effect, dang it. Yeah. You want that enhancement of the film based on the adaptation of it. Um, the last of Marvel's new releases for this year then is a single comic, a uh, one-shot that was delayed and delayed, and delayed, and delayed. Delayed to the point where the Journey to the Force Awakens logo that was originally going to be on the cover was removed, uh, but which also has the dubious distinction of being the one Star Wars comic to be adapted into a level of LEGO Star Wars The Force Awakens, a downloadable level that was originally a PlayStation exclusive, a timed exclusive, which uh, would be available to others later on. That's the nature of a timed exclusive. C-3PO... The Phantom Limb. The story of how C-3PO got his red arm. Before I give my thoughts on this, Mark, why don't you take this one first? I was looking forward to this because I wanted to know how I should recognize that droid that I saw in TFA. What we got was a global disappointment. I, I think this story had more potential than was utilized. I kept thinking, you know, how cool would it have been if it would have been Mr. Bones's arm or, or you know, something along those lines. And when we find out whose arm it is and everything, I, I was – it was just such a – to me, I felt like it was a stupid choice what they did. I, I felt like you could have picked 
any other droid from any other story. Heck, you could have picked a droid from Legends even, brought it in just for this, had that been the only reference. Oh, look, it's I-5. It's a droid from, you know, and no, I, I, I just, I was really let down. Like, this is the type of comic that I feel like these things shouldn't exist. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm that negative on this one. Wow, see, I figured what was going to happen was we'd be opposites, and I'd be the negative Nelly on this one. But, uh, yeah, I actually have to agree with you. I think th- this had some some uh, unintended hype buildup because of how much it was delayed, and I wonder if the delaying eventually got to the point of, well, we're just going to make it release closer to the Lego mission, the Lego Star Wars mission. But, I don't know, I think the idea of the heroic sacrifice made by one of the characters in this story is cool. Uh, where the arm came from. I think that the philosophy being discussed in the issue is cool. I think that if this had just been a random story that didn't tie into a film and had different artwork, but we'll get to that, I think it would have played better and I would have liked it more. Instead, I'm with you in that even though the dialogue and the the aspect of the sacrifice to me makes for a decent enough tale. The artwork was god-awful. I hate, I loathe the style of artwork. I know Michael Morris, my co-host on Cloud City Casino, we talked about this when we talked about the Phantom Limb DLC mission. He is the complete opposite. He actually really enjoys this art style. I think it's horrid. I would rather a story be in prose, fiction, written out with just words and no art than have art like this. Between that and and the way that it connected to the film, that did nothing for me. That actually pushed me away from this story. Uh, it made me dislike it when the story itself should make me like it. I like deeper philosophical overtones and discussion in stories. I like noble sacrifice. But this didn't work as soon as you add the art in and the fact that... I mean, if they had done this in... in Force Awakens and, and just given him a red arm and not said a thing. Just left 3PO walking around with a red arm and people wondering, well, where did the red arm come from? And maybe drop some hints like in a visual guide. Oh, it came from a noble sacrifice. Really? I wonder if we'll ever get that story. And then we got this story and be like, huh, that's pretty cool. I, I can respect that. I'm glad C-3PO has the red arm within the first part of the movie and that he's paying homage to that droid by keeping it for a while, although he does switch it back at the end of the movie. That That's cool. Instead, the movie does the, you probably didn't recognize me with the red arm and all that stupid shit. And the result is, sorry, Michael, the result is that you wind up expecting it to be something important, expecting it to be something that matters in the grand scheme of things. And then you get this story that winds up being kind of meh. And I would argue that this story being kind of meh might be able to be alleviated, and my issue with how it was handled in the film and then reflected here by something that wasn't quite what would be what would be expected could be alleviated if the rest of this story were told. We learn from, of all things, Lego Star Wars The Force Awakens, there's more to this. Because we've got the ship crashing down here at the beginning. We have this story of their walking across the planet and the other droids being destroyed until it's just Omni, I think is his name, and C-3PO, and then the sacrifice of the arm where Poe gets them. And they talk about how Akbar has been captured and they need to find some way to get to him, right? Needs to find some way to save him. Well, 
The story of the rescue of Akbar, the story of how really the ship going down was all basically a ruse in order to get their hands on an Imperial droid to get information about where Akbar is, and even what seems to be the beginning issue of what drives the attack on the ship in the first place on behalf of Phasma and all that stuff, and where they got this, this lead from, the First Order, where they got the lead from that led them into this in the first place, they're all covered within new missions released to add on to Lego Star Wars The Force Awakens. So in LEGO Star Wars, this story in context is a lot more interesting and impactful than it is right now in canon. In canon, all we've got is this and hints at the rest of the stuff. Give us those stories, maybe in the pages of Poe Dameron, and maybe this will feel like a story that should have been written. As of right now, it feels like it is an overly convoluted, poorly drawn backstory for a gimmick that shouldn't have been highlighted as a gimmick and should have just been a background detail in the movie, for which Marvel has some blame and the creators of the film share some blame. And how scary is it that they're blending the line like that, that a Lego video game is giving us more of the story than the actual comic book? Uh, you know, when you think about we got the Lego Freemakers and, you know, me likey and things like that, like you were actually giving some credence to the fact that it all counts. Even that Lego stuff, it's bringing things in like, oh, my God, that that scares the hell out of me. Plus nine variant covers. There were nine variant covers for C-3PO? Yes. And I bet one of them was a, was a blank one when somebody had Leia's titties on, didn't they? Well, well, ten then. Yeah, I'm sure there is a blank one out there too. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I don't understand why you needed to have this. I mean, granted, one's a movie variant cover by Lucasfilm where it's actually 3PO. That one has the Journey of the Force Awakens. I mean, I, I'm just, I, I'm just shocked. I'm just so blown away at that. And I think that to me is the complete, that is the, the issue where, where you get really mad at the milking of Marvel. That's the blatant, what the blatant cash grab. Just what the literal <laughs> are you guys doing? This comic sucks. Man, you are giving, we are giving Michael a lot of bleeps that he's going to have to add in a lot of little blaster sounds or something. Well, I think it's because, because we dig comics. I mean, that, that's been something that, that we really dig. And, you know, when Marvel got the handoff and stuff, there was all this, this, well, what are we going to do and stuff? And, and the coming out with this many variants for so many things. And then you're looking at this one, which was a subpar story with nine, possibly 10 variants. Like what justification do we really have for that? Like, oh my Lord. We can't get Sword of the Jedi, but we can get nine freaking variants on this? Ah. Well, you see, you see, having a bunch of covers and having trade paperbacks and then hardback collections of stuff so that you're constantly rebuying the same thing, I'm reminded of an old art book that you could buy, an instructive art book called How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. This is how to market comics the Marvel way. Ooh. Though you have more experience with that than, than I would because you read a lot of the Marvel series outside of this. I no longer do. So... The only other new release we really got this year that wasn't just a reprint of something from the past was something that was a reprint from outside the United States. And that was when Lucasfilm or Disney Lucasfilm Press, not Marvel, pulled together the original trilogy film adaptations from, I believe it was Brazil, and turned them into the original trilogy graphic novel with some very distinctive artwork and just adaptations of the film. I gotta say, I actually really like this one. I think the artwork is kind of kiddie. And it's not like it adds anything beyond 
you know, what we get from the films. We've already seen that kind of thing before. But despite the fact it doesn't really add anything, so it's just kind of a, yeah, shrug my shoulders and stick it on the shelves kind of thing, kind of like The Force Awakens was. The distinctive art style here really makes for a different experience as you're going through. It's almost like going through and reading these Star Wars trilogy manga adaptations that they made years ago or yeah. the photo comics in that it's a different experience. It doesn't feel like it's necessarily just a replacement for the films because there's just something a little different about it. Um, whereas for some yeah. reason, the Force Awakens adaptation didn't feel like it had that different feel. It just felt like a rote you know, let's just walk our way through the film kind of thing. I actually thought this one was all right. Yeah, yeah, it was Brazil also. Uh, yeah, they sent me that one as well. And I'm in the same boat. I probably would not have picked this up generally because it does its own thing. But since it came my way, the thing I discovered is this is a really good transition book for your kids. I mean, you know, my kids have all seen the films, but every one of my kids, even Jana, actually grabbed that and was flipping through it. They, the, the art's fun. The Magna description, I think that's a, a real close, strong parallel there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think... I I think for kids, especially uh, young kids and teens, the, the you know smaller adolescents and stuff, I think this is one of those things that might get them to be more open to grabbing other comics and stuff. I think that that's you know the angle about what's going on with the Lego Star Wars where I get irritated, like that blurred line. I do kind of think that they need something along that line for kids in the comic realm, something that is more this style that doesn't take its styling as serious, but can still tell a solid, serious Star Wars story. Uh, you know, it's not completely dummied down like Lego Freemakers. Ooh, Emperor Likey! You know, that stuff just drives me up a wall. I want to bang my head on a wall and then into a desk and then into a spike and I want to be like Glenn when it's all over with Lucille. I, I just, I can't handle that. But this was this was a way that I, I, I felt like they, they respected it. Uh, it. It made it kiddie enough that it was kid-friendly and yet I still enjoyed it and I, I appreciated that. Oh, poor Glenn. You should have stayed hiding under the dumpster, shouldn't you? That brings us into reprints and ver of various types for this year. Marvel put out quite a few. Uh, just like they had done those remastered versions of the original trilogy comic adaptations, which actually had new color and in some cases some tweaked art and whatnot, they did re-release with really no changes the adaptations that Dark Horse put out of The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith as hardback comics, uh, which of course is a nice turnabout, I suppose, because for years, Dark Horse was constantly reprinting the Marvel adaptations from 77, 80, and 83, so kind of turnabout is fa fair play there, I suppose. We have a hardcover reprint of Shattered Empire, which already had a trade paperback, so it's just like what they were doing with Star Wars Invader. <clears throat> then we had the uh, epic collection releases of New Republic Volume 2, which is X-Wing Rogue Leader, uh, X-Wing Rogue Squadron up through the storyline, the Warrior Princess, the X-Wing Rogue Squadron Special, and a pair of Star Wars Tales stories, Lucky and A Day in the Life. Epic Collection Rebellion Volume 1 with issues of Empire, Vader's Quest, and Brian Woods at Star Wars Volume 2. Sorry. Epic Collection The Original Marvel Years Volume 1 covering the original 1970s and 80s Marvel series numbers 1 through 23 plus the issues of Pizzazz and Star Wars Weekly from the UK number 60 that make up those stories. Epic Collection Legacy Volume 1 with Legacy issues 1 through 19. That, yes, that is the same Legacy we've been covering recently as we're wrapping up our coverage with Cade Skywalker and all. And then the Droids and Ewoks Omnibus that collected all of the Marvel-era Droids and Ewoks comics from Star Comics plus one overseas annual. I gotta say, it's nice to see them 
doing kind of what Dark Horse did with Marvel, which is doing the reprints and such. But whereas that was reprints into that continuity, in a way, this is sort of keeping Legends alive and that the Epic Collections are reprinting a bunch of older Dark Horse stuff for the most part, giving us a way for those to be introduced to new audiences or for people to get them who never got them before. Now that Dark Horse can't publish more reprints of things, uh, which means you either go to a comic shop looking for back issues, eBay looking for back issues, or you hope for one of these new collections. The Droids and Ewoks one seems kind of redundant, given that we just got an omnibus from Dark Horse of that a while back, but again, it's not available anymore. Really, my only head shaker of this is uh, the Epic Collection Original Marvel Years Volume 1, because they just did this! They just did it! They just didn't call it Epic Collection! They're already going back to the well on their old Marvel stuff and just reprinting it over and over again. At least when it was printed as Classic Star Wars a long time ago, and then as Classic Star Wars a long time ago, yes, same name, different format, and then eventually as Omnibuy, it was years apart when they did it for Dark Horse. This is like, in less than a year, it's, hey, here's the original Marvel stuff. Hey, here's the original Marvel stuff. I'm betting by next year it'll be, hey, here's the original Marvel stuff. I just don't see... I don't know, I guess, again, it's back to the people are going to buy it, so we're going to reprint it in all these different formats and get them to. But again, as someone who who looks at this from a standpoint of, I love the idea of a consumer-friendly way of doing business, this just kind of irks me. But we've talked about this plenty, so uh, I'll try to hang my hat in this case on just the, well, it's nice to see the reprints uh, of stuff that otherwise you couldn't get. And, you know, it's nice to see that Legacy itself is getting its own epic collection as opposed to being mixed in with other stuff. Yeah, I like the fact that, that Marvel's able to sell it. I mean, it's a little harsh for Dark Horse, but, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. The thing with the droids and the Ewoks omnibus, now, is that the same dimensions as the Dark Horse omnibus, or is Marvel's omnibus is a little bit taller? I, I I think theirs are taller. I think theirs are more like a standard uh, like a standard comic size or trade paperback size. I haven't picked this one up, and I haven't seen it on store shelves, so it could be, but I don't think it is. I think it's just a standard size. And that's that was where I was wondering, because it seems like the Epic collections are all a standard size they're not like a regular omnibus and i kind of i'm like so why are they calling that one an omnibus and not an epic collection as well because i have a feeling that they're probably the same dimensions I, that's that's the only oddity here <laughs> probably because if you've ever read the ewoks and droids comics there is absolutely nothing epic about them they're horrible <laughs> that, could, that could be it right there in and of itself yeah I, I think that that for me is the weird thing here it's like all it really feels like is changing is just the dimensions of the book itself <laughs> You know, like, okay, wh- I'm, in, I'm in the same boat. Like, I, why are we doing that with some of these? Like, I like the fact, though, that, yeah, we got the Epic Collections. Uh, I pretty much own them all, so there's really no need for me to get it. But for those of you out there that, you know, you were you were just getting into Legends and all this stuff came down and you heard, oh, well, Dark Horse ain't going to be able to sell it anymore, that panic that came in. <sighs> There's your sigh of your breath of relief. You can sigh now and, and relax. You can collect legends still. I think that is I think that is a, a, a really cool out. Um, you know, I mean, we as Legends fan, we're in an era where you kind of feel like you're getting the shaft all the time. And to have somebody out there still marketing to you is heartwarming. And I think that there's I mean, the obvious thing is that we get frustrated by the idea of double dipping. That's why I don't like the idea of, hey, here's the issues, here's a trade paperback, here's a hardback version, all within the span of about a year, year and a half. But I think there is something to be said for the things like the Epic Collection, at least not in the case of the Marvel years, but the stuff from Legends, the stuff that was originally from Dark Horse. I think there is something to be said for that because I don't feel like that's so much double dipping as that is taking a product that is no longer available 
because of the way that the business decisions worked, uh, because the original publisher can't publish them, and putting them out again saying, hey, let's make this available. This, to me, should be as cool to those today who are curious about the Legends continuity, but didn't get into it at the time, as picking up classic Star Wars a long time ago or the Marvel Omnibuy that Dark Horse put out was, to me, as someone who was seeped in Legends, who hadn't necessarily read all the Marvel stuff or hadn't really touched it in a while. Uh, now, for me, I went and bought all the original Marvel stuff back when I was in college. I found some eBay auctions to get all of it. But I like reading them in the omnibus form because it won't damage my earlier comics. So there's that angle as well. Um, but I notice, I, I notice, for instance, and this, I, I really hadn't seen this very often, but it seems like it's happening more and more lately. Maybe because more people are getting into Star Wars thanks to the new films and whatnot. But I do that series from the Star Wars home video library on YouTube. And... I'm seeing more and more people commenting on relatively, what I think of as relatively late releases of Star Wars on home video, like releases from 1997, from 2000, the original DVD release of Phantom Menace that, to me, it was like high school into college and later adulthood, so I don't think of those as really old. But frequently I'm getting people making comments like, I wish I had picked this up at the time, or I wish I could find a copy of this that won't cost me an arm and a leg because I wasn't a fan at the time. And if that's the case with stuff from like the early 2000s, 90s, and before, when it comes to home video, I would think the same would hold true for comics and such. So being able to see something like an epic collection out there, providing a way to get your hands on those older materials, and the acknowledgement that that was Star Wars for so long, even if now it is essentially a separate continuity... And it's well marked that way. Uh, I think that's a good thing, even though I know for, for collectors who want one copy of every single thing, which includes one copy of every different collected edition of the same thing, which I don't do. I just get up the first release, whatever it was. I can see how it would be very frustrating, but I think there's a very distinct line that needs to be drawn between, hey, we're going to reprint something from years ago from another company that they can't put out any collected editions of so we can keep that stuff in print versus hey, here's the third time we've made this same one of our news stories available to you in the last year and a half. Please buy it again. Those, to me, are different things. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I like the fact that, you know, I, I remember going out and, and hunting down at the old used bookstores all the different Galaxy of Fear books, you know, and each time I come across one that I didn't have, how excited I would get. And I, I think if you're one of those fans that felt like, you know, you, you were just getting into Legends and you were with us and were left behind... Uh, you know, the, the not being catered to group. I mean, not that I really want to be catered to, but I like to enjoy what I enjoy. But you have the ability to, to collect that stuff. You can have that, that same Mission Impossible feel when you're going out and finding the stuff. Uh, and then there's the other side of it, the uniform. You know, you have the all being epic collections here. You know, I remember that long time ago and stuff. I had like one or two of the issues and then they changed the format. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to get a different style book and finish this in a different style. Like, I like uniformity. So I like the fact that there is that aspect to Marvel. You know, when they do their hardcovers and stuff like that, they do have a uniform look, whether it's Spider-Man or Star Wars. You know, they all have that same feel, which is what I appreciated about Dark Horse's omnibuses. You know, it didn't matter if it was Buffy or Aliens or Star Wars. You had them all on the shelf. They all matched and it looked really nice and, and classy. Uh, Mission Impossible when hunting comics. I felt that way when gathering the original 80 issues of Transformers way back in the day from Marvel in my first comic <laughs> shop visits. Although I guess these days it'd be more like uh, you pick up a copy of the Chewbacca trade paperback from Marvel and it's like, you know, this comic will explode in 15 seconds and then the time's up and it explodes but it turns out that rather than being flames it covers you in feces because it's just sort of appropriate. 
with a Wookiee. And a bunch of hair, a bunch of matted hair, too. Oh, Oh. tarred and feathered. And yes, again, we have an episode with a feces joke. Wow. And apparently it almost killed Michael uh, listening to the... uh, the, the sunflower seeds thing last week. So, <laughs> thanks, Nathan P. Butler. You're the. Sh- <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, so I guess going back to the original three things here, then um, I still would say after revisiting this, I still do think that in a lot of ways it was more quantity than quality. I don't think it's necessarily a conscious choice. A lot of stuff was just kind of yeah, mediocre. It was all right, but it certainly was a push toward quantity this time around. I do still think that despite their shortcomings and the mediocrity, I or even mediocrity, T, C, whichever. I'm not sure if it's a T or a C off the top of my head. Uh, that's what spell check is for. But uh, I think despite that, it is still a more cohesive, understandable version of a timeline between A New Hope and Empire. And I hope that they manage to pin that down some more so it remains so. But they have a lot of messing up to do before it could be as convoluted as what happened in Legends in that era because of the way the publishing worked at the time. And as far as the dude aspect, I do think that, yeah, there's there's a lot of, dude, wouldn't this be cool? Then let's build a story around that cool thing, story pitches, as opposed to the story itself taking center stage. But hopefully that will change. Uh, Mark, what do you think? You think that those are, we talked about them at the beginning. Do you feel like your opinion is still the same having discussed it again? Or I think I might be even more critical. I feel like... Marvel is a student that's pulling a C right now and they're slipping closer to a C minus and they could they could you know you know they've got the potential to be an A student uh you know I I'm I'm in, I'm still I think that the quantity is way outproducing the quality of what they're giving us which is a a number one red flag for me I think that the approach to consistency is not solid enough when you have comic series series more than one that we don't know where they fit in the timeline that is a recipe for disaster and i think about the fact that dark horse i don't even think on their best year put out as many comics as we've got right here and we're only two years into marvel i i think that with the recipe that marvel has right now if they don't pull their head out of their behind they are going to be looking at a D and an F real soon before the semester over because they've got to correct those kind of issues. The brotastic tales, the gimmick of the week, need to be reined in and they need to bring that quality up. Because if they don't raise the quality, they're never going to get to an A level. They are going to fail. Uh, And unfortunately, when they fail, canon is going to fail with it. And that idea that it all matters is going to fail and you think you've got militant legends fans out there now once they feel justified that canon is just as much crap as as what canon fans are calling legends you're going to see some really angry people and that scares the hell out of me and i i'm like you know come on marvel you have an opportunity here i know you're an a student i read your other comics i know you can get your game together you got to get focused get out a binder reminder stick to your damn dates keep the stuff coming because that is your big flaw you flake around and well what's the college what's the college teacher tell you oh you missed the date you failed you can't miss the date you gotta stick to the the cross on the t's the dot in the i's it's the little quality things that are going to set you apart and right now your quality is lacking you are on the thin line you are on the raggedy edge i see i thought we'd gotten away from talking about tittles and jots 
Oh wait, no, that's that's a, that's a different thing. Tittles and jots. That's the, <laughs> the crosses on T's and the dots on I's. Though I forget which is which. I think it's tittle is the cross and jot is the dot. Anyway, I think you you nailed it right there. I'm surprised that I didn't, as a teacher, pull out a teacher comparison myself. But yeah, it seems like I thought you'd like that. Right now, Marvel is like somewhere in the C range. They're getting C's. They're getting B's. Every great once in a while, they'll get a D. But they don't really care. Like, as long as they're somewhere up around the mid to high C, they're passing the class. And I'm in a county where there is no such thing as a D, by the way. It's just ABCF. If you're under 70%, you failed. And every once in a while when they get a B, they're like, yeah, my average might go up to an 80. I might wind up with a B, but I don't care. I I just want the credit. I just don't want to have to take the class again. Is that all right? When you know they're sitting back there with the potential to be an A student. But every great once in a while while they're turning in either okay stuff or slightly better than okay stuff, every once in a while you'll ask them for a report on Napoleon Bonaparte and they hand you a research paper on Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) What were you thinking? I'm looking at you, Chewbacca miniseries. But that was last year, not the end of the current year, so uh, uh, I digress. Though stay away from that trade paperback, it sucks. So I guess that wraps up comics for 2016. We knew we were going to have a lot of them, and it turned out to be a longer issue uh, or a longer issue, longer episode here about those issues than we had with the books. One has to wonder how our length is going to turn out here episode wise for the games and the home video slash movie slash other stuff coming up in the next two weeks. Indeed. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe, the canon universe, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Marvel will miss the point of some of the criticisms here if anybody over there hears it, and they're just going to hear our idea of, like, Infinity Gauntlet meets Star Wars, and we'll wind up with a story in which we have Yoda and Groot meeting and having a conversation of, I am Groot. Yoda, I am. I can just see it now. Han gets separated from the group and becomes Indiana Jones on Earth. And winds up being like, Hey, Gamora. How you doing? I'm Luke Skywalker, man. Don't you know my name? Who? Anyway. (laughs) 